Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life, so we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at www.christchapelcollege.org and on Instagram at Christ Chapel College. y'all. All right, good morning. How we doing? Good, fantastic. Um, all right, let's go uh, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We'll be uh, jumping around a bit this morning, but we'll start off there. Uh, so one morning when I was a senior in high school, uh, I wake up, I get ready, uh, I walk downstairs to go to school just like any other day, and when I get downstairs, both of my parents are, are waiting for me, which was uncommon. Uh, both, both my parents worked, so they were usually gone. Uh, so I, I see them both there, and they say, uh, hey, we, we need to talk. Uh, which, if you've been a human for any period of time, you know, like, that phrase is not like an invitation into a fun conversation, right? Like, if you're dating somebody and you ever see a text that says, we need to talk, you know it's over. Like, that's it. You are done. Like, just go ahead and just don't even reply. Like, get it. Check. All right. Um, right? And so they, they say, hey, we need to talk. And I immediately just kind of start, like, racking my brain. I'm like, man, what? Like, did I do something? I don't think I did, but maybe I did. And I start thinking, I'm like, are they okay? Or, like, did someone die? Is someone hurt? Like, I mean, I, I've, I'm, I had no clue what this conversation was about to be about. And I could not in a million years have guessed what they were going to tell me. Because what they told me is they, they, they sat me down and they said that, hey, you know, when you go to school today, you're, you're, you're going to learn something um, your Bible teacher, I went to, to this Christian school, they said, your Bible teacher, and more importantly, the guy that had been walking with me, the guy that had mentored me and discipled me for two or three years, they said, he got fired because he had an affair with a girl in your class. And I remember just being so shocked and so confused and, 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 and just kind of having all these questions of, wait, hold on, like him and heard like like how and like like what like like when why like I mean I, I couldn't even wrap my mind around what I was hearing because what was just so shocking was the hypocrisy there's this guy that for years had stood up and he had taught us and um, and talked about Jesus and what it looked like to follow him and had challenged us all to, to grow to look more like Christ and then there was this kind of jarring kind of wound that came from you're a liar like, like you spend all of your time trying to tell us to look like Jesus when you clearly haven't been practicing what you preach. And it wasn't just me. I mean, the whole school just kind of felt this overwhelming wound based on this hypocrisy. And I bring that up because we are, we are in this series called Church Hurt. And we're trying to kind of walk through some of the ways that we have been wounded by uh, the church, either leaders in the church or people just in the church. And, and I think one of the most wounding things that we experience is hypocrisy. This idea that, that, that someone is like talking a big game about following Jesus, but they're not actually living it out, not actually following Jesus. Right? There, there's something about it that is just so wounding, right? And, and, and all week, I've been trying to kind of put my finger on why, and I've been asking a bunch of people, like, like what about hypocrisy is so hurtful? And, and, and I, I, to be completely honest, like, I don't really even know. It just is. Right? It's kind of like, I don't know why the Grand Canyon is beautiful. 
just is, right? It's just a giant hole in the ground, but it takes your breath away, right? It's, it's erosion at its finest, yet it's beautiful, right? And, and I think that hypocrisy is the exact same way. Like, I don't totally know what about it is so hurtful, but it is. And maybe you feel that. Maybe your story is you pushed Jesus away for a long time because you've seen this hypocrisy among his followers. Or you just had a lot of baggage growing up because you just see people um, preach something or, or, or talk a big game about what it looks like to follow Christ and then just do the complete opposite in their lives, right? I mean, it's a, it's a thing that's been bothersome for a long time. In fact, uh, Mahatma Gandhi uh, was famously quoted saying, saying this. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I think that if we were to, to boil kind of our feelings towards hypocrisy into kind of one phrase, I feel like the, the majority of the world would say, yeah, yeah, that's it. Like, that's what I feel. This idea of like, it's not that I don't like Christ. Like, like I think Christ is cool. I think Jesus is cool. It's just the, the hypocrisy of his followers. Like, it's just so off-putting, right? And so it's been this thing that we've kind of battled with for a long time. And so maybe you've been wounded by it. And so I just wanted to just to talk about, man, how do we kind of process it? How do we kind of figure out what do we do? How do we process and kind of heal from the hypocrisy from either church leaders or just people in the church? And so that's where we're going today. But before we get there, let me just clarify two, two things. One, I want to kind of define what I mean when I say hypocrisy, because I feel like there's probably a lot of different ideas. Today specifically, I'm talking about this. We're going to define the hypocrite as someone who uh, follows Jesus, uh, but actually looks nothing like Jesus, right? A person who follows Jesus, but that, like on a consistent basis looks nothing like Jesus, right? This kind of idea of kind of not practicing what you preach. So that's, that's what I mean. But here's the second thing that I want to kind of clarify. We're all hypocrites, right? Like this is a safe, safe place. I don't say that to beat anybody up. Like if you've been following Christ for 30 seconds, you've probably done something hypocritical, Right? Like we're all guilty of, of, of wanting to follow Christ or kind of talking a big game about following Christ, but not actually doing it. So, so I say that just so we can all kind of breathe and know that like we, we're all guilty of being hypocritical on some level. And so what I want to do today is I just kind of want to hold up a mirror and just give us a chance to kind of look in the mirror and say, hey, how am I doing? How am I doing? Because maybe, yes, I've been wounded, but maybe I've actually wounded others along the way as well. So I, I want to talk today specifically about three ways that I think that we kind of inadvertently wound people by our hypocrisy, by um, not actually looking like Christ in our daily lives. So uh, let's go ahead and, uh, and dive in, and we'll talk about what those three things are. The first way that I think that we kind of wound people by not looking like Christ is that we are too busy to be present. We are too busy to be present. That might sound super weird, but, man, we are too busy to be present. And what I mean is this. If you look at the life of Christ, there is not a person on the planet that was more in demand than Jesus, right? Yet, when you look at his interactions, despite all the demands on his life and his schedule, no one was more present. No one found this ability to just, just be present and in the moment with whoever he was talking to, right? Um, so let me give you an example of this. Um, in Luke 8, a little back, background, uh, this guy named Jairus approaches uh, Christ and says, hey, my daughter is about to die. Like, my daughter is about to die. She is super sick. Will you come to my house and heal her? And Jesus says, yes. So as they begin to walk to this guy's house, um, look what happens next. This is Luke 8, starting in verse uh, 42. It says, and as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. 
So there was this large, large crowd just pressing around him. It says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anybody. But she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me, for I perceived the power had gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all, why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed, and he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. All right, so I love this picture. I love this story, and here's why. Because this is like a legitimate life or death situation, right? They, they are on their way to, to, to see if Jesus can heal this girl that's about to die, and this crowd is all around them, and they're all kind of, you know, grasping at them. And, and as they walk, this, this sweet lady that's had this kind of chronic um, illness for 12 years and spent all of her money on physicians and all this stuff, she thinks, man, if I can just get within, like, just the ability, just, just, just to touch the bottom of his robe, man, that's enough to heal me. And so she kind of sneaks in there, and she does it, and immediately she's healed. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, whoa, whoa, who touched me? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching you, bro. Like, I, mean, like, I mean, you were in the middle of a mosh pit. Like, everybody is touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? And he said, no, 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 like, somebody touched me. And you can almost even, like, hear in the story just this, like, urgency of, like, dude, it doesn't matter who touched you. Like, this girl's about to die. Like, we, we, we got to go. Like, we got to keep going. And Jesus is so present. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, hold on. Somebody touched me. Who touched me? And it says that this woman, when she realizes that Jesus is not moving on, she comes before him and she's trembling. And I think that's a really f- interesting detail here in the story, because I think trembling is the proper response for a couple, uh, couple reasons. One, if you imagine being sick for 12 years, a chronic sickness for 12 years, and you spend all of your money, all of your time trying to see a doctor, trying to see if someone could fix you or heal you, and for 12 years, nothing has happened, and it's just been chronic. And then in a moment, you touch the robe of Christ, and it's gone. I can't, like, shaking is the proper response. Just the gravity of what just happened, the gravity of the healing that she just experienced, like, like that should leave you trembling in awe of the power of Jesus. Like, I mean, that's a proper response. But then there's probably also this trembling that's taken place of, man, how is he going to respond? How is he going to respond to this? And so she comes, and, and what I think is so fascinating about the story is that she tells the whole story. Remember, that, like, they're still on the way. This girl's about to die. Like, this is a, this, I mean, like, guys, we got to go. And she sits and she tells him the whole story. She tells the whole story of, man, 12 years and all these doctors and money. Because, I mean, somehow Luke knows the details of this person's life. Why? Because she told the whole story. So if you're Jarius, I mean, what are you thinking? I was like, bro, my daughter, remember, remember the goal. Remember where we're going. And Jesus said, like, no, 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 I'm I'm listening. And he listens to the whole story, and he stops, and he's present, and then he finishes by saying, daughter, 
There is a tenderness in his voice that says, hey, daughter, your faith, God, your faith is amazing. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That phrase, like that's not a phrase that you can say in a rush, right? That is a phrase where like you just sense Jesus just saying, oh, what a moment. God, what a moment. Your faith oh, made you well. Go in peace. Right? I mean, there is a presence that Jesus has in the midst of just being crazy busy, crazy in demand, and he just stops, and he's present. Now, if you're thinking, well, what happens next? Uh, the girl actually dies, and Jesus goes, and he heals her, and she comes back to life. It's incredible. Um, so everything works out well. But I want to focus on just the presence of what he does here, right? Because he is just so present. And the reason why I think being present is so important is because nothing makes us feel more loved and wanted and seen than someone taking the time to be present. And on the flip side, nothing makes us feel more like a burden or an inconvenience than someone refusing to take the time just to look you in the eye and be present. I think that's so, so important because we live in a culture that wears busyness as a badge of honor, if we're honest, right? Like we live in a culture that believes that the busier you are, the more important you must be. And no one doesn't want to be seen as unimportant, right? Like, we, we all want to be seen as someone that has kind of some, something going on. We have, we have some, uh, some place to be, and, and the more places we have to be, the more important we are, and the more important we feel. And so oftentimes, even as followers of Christ, like, we just get so caught up in just the busyness of our culture that we can just kind of go from thing to thing to thing and just not be present. And there is nothing that makes you feel more unloved and more unseen than someone who's just not willing to take the time to be in the moment, right? And I think there's some, something jarring that if someone were to read about the life of Christ and they were to see, man, this dude's just present. This dude just always makes every single person that he interacts with, makes them feel so just zoned in. Man, there's, there's something jarring when, when we just kind of bounce from thing to thing and we just seem so busy that we can't even just stop to treat people like people. Because what happens when we get so caught up in just the busyness of our culture, people become projects, right? And especially in kind of a Christian circle where we'll, we'll, we'll just stack meetings on meetings and all these other things, and the next thing you know, our kind of mentality is, all right, I got 30 minutes, I've got an hour, like, what's your problem? Talk to me about, about this. Okay, read, read this, pray about this, talk to so-and-so, and all of a sudden, all right, cool, good. Then we're on to the next thing, and what happens is that in our relationships, we view it as, man, this is just a, this is just a project, it's not a person. And if we really want to be people that look like Christ, there's something about our lifestyle that should just lead us to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be present. I'm going to stop. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to look you in the eye. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to listen with my face, right? Be like, oh, my gosh. Like have, like have facial expressions that match the conversation. I'm going to be present. Now, let me clarify. There is a, a massive difference and being present and being eternally accessible. Those are not the same thing. Right? And sometimes we have these kind of unrealistic expectations that somebody should just be always available, always accessible, and if they're not willing to kind of meet me right now in the midst of what's going on, then, then man, they're un un unloving. And the reality is we also see that within Christ, that, that Christ didn't, uh, didn't have a chance to minister to every single person the exact same way. He wasn't eternally accessible. But when he was in the moment, he was in the moment. And so I think for us, there needs to be a place where, man, can we kind of put the mirror up to our face and look at our own lives and say, man, am, am I actually being present the way that Jesus was being present? 
because although this is kind of somewhat minute and it's not anything like some kind of like grand moral failure, some, some kind of grand hypocrisy on a large scale, there's something hypocritical when we see Christ living this life where he's so present in the midst of being in demand, in the midst of having a crazy schedule. There's something hypocritical when, when we in the midst of our busy schedule refuse just to slow down and be present to love people as people and not as projects. Right, so that's, that's the first way that I want to challenge us to kind of look at our own, um, our own heart and soul and kind of our own um, schedule to, to figure out, I mean, are, are we too busy to be present? But here's the second way that I think that we, uh, we tend to wound people through our hypocrisy. And it's that we play favorites. That we play favorites. And let me explain what I mean. Again, if you look at the life of Christ, what you see is you see someone who hung out with so many different types of people. Right? I mean, he, he hung out with crazy, like wealthy, influential people, and he also hung out with those who were kind of on kind of the outskirts of kind of culture, culture and society and, and, and everybody in between. Like his network of people was so broad, and, and, and he treated every single person the exact same way. I mean, he was so broad in kind of who he hung out with, Right? But if we're honest, I think as believers, there's, there's, some, there's something about the way that we interact where it's really easy to kind of pick and choose who we want to engage. There's something where, where we can kind of inadvertently tend to play favorites within the church. And, and, and this has been something that's not new. This has been uh, going on for a long time. In fact, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in the book of James, he wrote this to the church. Uh, this, this is in James, James 2. Uh, he says, he says this, he says, my, my brother, show no partiality, meaning show no favoritism, as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions? among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Skip down to verse, verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well, but if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What James, James is saying is that there, there's this kind of natural inclination when, when, when we gather to play favorites to show partiality, right? And I think it's honestly really, really easy to do for a couple reasons. One is this. I think, one, sameness is always easier than oneness, right? Sameness is always easier than oneness. And that's a phrase that we use, use um, a lot here, but let me explain that. Uh, sameness is the idea that we are all kind of drawn to people like us, right? Matt Chandler says that we are drawn to the mirror, meaning that, that, that we just tend to kind of gravitate towards people that look like us, that act like us, that think like us, that talk like us, that behave like us, that go to the same places, right? Like we just kind of gravitate towards people that are like us, that are the same as us, right? And that's not a bad thing. It's just natural. It's just easy because there's just not a lot of stepping on toes when it comes to being with people that are like me, right? I don't have to think a whole lot about how to interact. Like, it's just what it means to be with people that are like me, right? But if we read um, the gospel, specifically in John 17, we see Jesus kind of pray this massive prayer that for his people, the goal is not to be the same. The goal is to be one. 
meaning that despite our differences, despite kind of how all over the map followers of Christ might be, that we are one despite how different we may be, that we're not the same, we're one. And I think that oftentimes it's so easy to get to a place where, where we just gravitate towards sameness because it's easier. Oneness is hard. Oneness is messy. Oneness requires us to kind of understand a bunch of different things on, on how to relate and love people better. Right? And so we just kind of naturally gravitate towards people that are the same as us. And sometimes that feels like playing favorites. Right? The second reason why I think it's easy to play favorites in the church is because we tend to rank certain gift mixes and certain personalities as higher than others. And I just want to own that for a second. I think if we're being honest, there's certain times when, when we gather that there's certain gifts and strengths and personality types that we can inadvertently just kind of rank over others. And few things are more wounding than feeling like you don't have a place. When you walk into a place and you think, man, I don't belong here, right? An example of this, I've, I've talked to a lot of people um, over the years that are introverts. Introverts, where are you at? JK, oh, oh, wow, that you surprised me. That's very unlike an introvert of you to raise your hand and call yourself out. Oh, man, I'm proud of you guys. Um, I was actually ex- expecting silence. Um, th- threw me off a little bit. Uh, all right, so I've talked to so many introverts over the years where introverts feel like, man, I don't have a place in the church. I walk into to a room, and, 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 and the people that everyone else gravitates towards are the ones that are loud, and they're funny, and they're working the room, and and then they just kind of sit, sit back and think, man, I, I have some depth. I have some things that I feel like I can offer, but I just kind of feel overlooked. It's kind of feel unseen. And it took some honest conversations where people were, were willing to say, I don't know where I fit. I don't know where I belong because I don't fit the kind of mold of what a, a leader in the church or something like that looks like. And there's something incredibly wounding, like feeling like you don't have a certain place because of the way that God has wired you. I mean, if you've ever felt that here, man, I am so sorry. I'm sincerely sorry because you have a place to belong. We'd actually love to walk alongside you and help figure out how can we utilize your gifts and your strengths and your talents and how God has wired you to bring glory to him and move the kingdom of God ahead. Right? But it's not just that. There's so many different things that we do where we can kind of feel like, man, we don't don't have a place to belong because we just kind of play favorites at times. Maybe you buck in the room, and maybe it's the fact that you don't go to TCU. And you feel like, oh, I, like, I'm not a TCU kid. I don't belong here. Right? Man, if that's you, I'm so sorry. Maybe you buck in here, and you feel like if you're not in a certain organization or a certain fraternity or sorority or something, you feel kind of on the outside. Man, if that's, again, I'm so sorry. The church is not a place where we play favorites, or it shouldn't be. Right, when, when we get to heaven, you are going to be so amazed at the diversity of the kingdom of God. Because the beauty of what the gospel says is that there's, there's no favoritism. Right, that, that the ground is level at the cross, that when Christ died for you, he didn't die because you earned it. He didn't die because you, you, you're kind of some special elite group that kind of made the cut. No, when Jesus went to the cross, he died for all. So there's no favoritism in the church. And so, man, if you've been wounded by, playing, by someone playing favorites, I'm so sorry. But also, again, I want us to open the mirror to ourselves and say, man, am I guilty? Am I gu- guilty of just kind of walking into the gathering of believers and just kind of staying in my comfort zone? 
or kind of stiff arming someone because it's like, ah, it just kind of takes a lot of work to kind of step outside myself. And are we guilty of playing favorites because the kingdom of God should not look like that? If, if we want to truly look like Christ, uh, we've got to stop playing favorites. Here's the last thing I want to lay before you, the last way that we tend to wound through our hypocrisy. And it's that there are times when our love is conditional. Times when our love is conditional. What sets the Christian faith apart from every other faith system on the planet is that you don't have to earn your way before God. You you don't have to earn your salvation. Your works do not play a role in your salvation. The love of God is unconditional. Through what Christ has done on his death and resurrection, the love of God, like it's it's yours. It belongs to you. To you, there's like there's no strings attached. The love of God is completely unconditional, right? And we see it all throughout throughout Scripture. One of my favorite uh, verses that, that kind of explains this is Isaiah 55. Um, I love I love the imagery of God's love for us in this verse. It says this: It says, "Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat." Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? It says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What God is saying to his people here is, hey, I want to make with you this covenant. I, I want to have this steadfast, everlasting relationship, this, this covenantal love. And the best part about it is it's free. He has this beautiful picture of this, of this feast. It's like, hey, I know you can't bring anything to the table. I know that you're broke. That doesn't matter. Come eat, drink, have your fill, because what I want to do is I want to have this relationship, and you don't have to do anything. Just come. Like there's no strings attached. Come, eat, drink, have your fill. Paul in Ephesians 2 uh, echoes this. He says, for, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not a, a result of work so that no one may boast. He's, he's so clear, like, hey, in our salvation, the love of God for us, like you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do. It's not a work. Man, this is a pure gift from God. There's no strings attached. It's unconditional. Man, just come place your faith in Christ and the love of God. It's yours. You don't have to earn it. Stop striving. Stop trying to make yourself right before God. Like it's just, it's just yours. And, and we see that all throughout Scripture. And there is something so compelling about the unconditional love of God. In fact, it's one of the things that, as I've talked to people over the years, it's honestly a hang-up at times. I've had conversations where people are like, wait, hold on, so I don't have to do anything? It's like all my good works, all my morality, all my kind of striving and doing, it doesn't count. No, I mean, good for you, but like, it doesn't count, right? Like, it's this kind of overwhelming, kind of mind-blowing idea that our, on, on, on our best day, it's filthy rags before God, but the beauty of the gospel is we get God for free. It's unbelievable. However, there's something so jarring, so wounding when we are taught this message of unconditional love, yet the love that we experience from the followers of God has all kinds of strings attached to it. There's, there's these kind of conditions and stipulations. 
And so maybe somewhere along the way, you've kind of experienced that. Maybe that's your story. That you kind of walked into a community and you heard, man, we want you to be here. You, you, you can belong here. Oh, but you believe that? Oh, but you're, you're into that? Oh, that, 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 that kind of makes things a little tough, right? Or maybe you had this community that was, I mean, come be a part, come belong, come experience this kind of unconditional love of God as long as you sign up for our thing. As long as you do our thing, as long as you be a part of what we're doing, and then if you're not really down for kind of our way of doing, doing things, then maybe this isn't the place for you. Or maybe you realize that, man, there's, there's this beautiful idea that, man, at the cross, like, my sins are forgotten. My sins are wiped away, yet you entered into a community, and then you realize, man, they, they still remember. And they bring it up, and they let me know that they still remember. I thought my sins, I thought in Christ my sins were forgotten, but no, they very much still remember, and it kind of affects their affection of me or for me. I mean, there is something so wounding when we hear a message of unconditional love that we see at the cross, yet are met with love that has all kinds of strings attached to it. And then if that's your story, if you've experienced that on some level, man, again, I'm so sorry. The last thing that the, the church, the, the, the place, the, the kingdom of God should be is a place where the love of Christ and the love of his people are in conflict because one doesn't have strings and one does. Now, let me clarify, there, there is a difference between having this kind of unconditional you belong here and then just kind of winking at sin. All right? The beauty of the gospel is that he says, hey, come to me. Like, like you can come to him broken, but out of his love for you, he's not going to allow you to stay that way. He's going to call you out of his love to, to change and grow and to grow to look more like Christ. And so I'm not talking about kind of winking at sin or letting you just kind of do whatever you feel like is right. No, there, there's a level of, hey, come grow, look more like Christ. There's a way to, to, to challenge and to grow that still models the unconditional love of God, and then there's a way to do that that kind of has some strength attached to it. And I'm so sorry if that's what you've experienced. And again, I think we should look, be able to look in the mirror and say, man, is that me? Do I love up into a point? Do I love people up into a point, but then as soon as this thing happens or they reveal this, or, man, does our love for them, them change? Now, what do we do with this? All right. I want to close with a couple applications. What do we do if either you realize, like, one, I've been hurt by, by this. That's exactly what's been kind of happening to me. Or realize, wow, I'm the one doing this. Like, I'm the one that is guilty of kind of functioning like this. Man, what do we, what do, we do? I'm going to give one application for those that have been hurt and one application for those that have been doing the wounding. If you've been hurt, let me challenge you with this. Um, forgive and seek reconciliation. You're, you're going to notice a trend in this entire series. Forgiveness is huge. But specifically, here's why I think forgiveness is so huge in this case, right? There, the, the irony of this is that there's something so hypocritical about us. If we have graciously and, and, and joyfully received the forgiveness of God, yet we refuse to extend forgiveness to those that have hurt us. That is one of the most hypocritical things that we can do to, to excitedly like, receive the forgiveness of God, yet refuse to give it back. In fact, um, in Matthew 18, Jesus tells this parable called the unforgiving uh, servant. 
And essentially what happens is this servant comes before this king and, and he owes him 10,000 talents, which means nothing to us. But if you do the conversion, it's about $6 billion, right? It's this kind of hyperbolic statement. Like, I mean, dude owes a ton of cash, right? And he comes to the king and he says, hey, um, I can't pay this back, but man, I, I, like, I'm going to work. I'm going to start driving Uber. I'm going to start doing all these things like to, to, to like kind of make ends meet. Like I, I know $6 billion is a lot, but I'm going to give it back to you. And the king has mercy on him. He has compassion on him. And he says, you know what? We're good. And he cancels the debt. I mean, he just straight up cancels a $6 billion debt. And the guy leaves and he's like, oh my gosh, like this is amazing. Like he just canceled this debt. Right? I mean, this crazy, gracious forgiveness of this debt that he could never repay. Well, the servant turns around and he starts walking and he sees on his walk, he sees a guy that owes him money, right? And it's still a pretty good chunk of change, but it's more like a happy meal compared to the $6 billion that he just got forgiven. And so he goes up to this guy and says, yo, you owe me some money. And the guy says, I can't pay you back. And he begins to choke him out. And the king like walks up to him and is like, are you an idiot? Like, 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 like for real, like I just forgave you a $6 billion debt and you choked this guy out over a happy meal. Like I'd have no category for what's happening right here, right? And, and what Jesus tells this parable for is to help us see, man, there is something hypocritical. If we have been hurt, if we have been wounded, if we have been forgiven a debt that we could never repay, yet we refuse to forgive those that have hurt us that we, free, we refuse to forgive those that have wounded us. There, there's, there's something hypocritical. Now, here's the thing. That doesn't make forgiveness any easier. Because one of the things that, that's fascinated me about that parable specifically is that when the king forgave the $6 billion debt, he didn't magically get $6 billion back. He chose to take the hit. Like, he was still out a ton of money, and he wasn't getting that money back. He took, he absorbed this hit just purely out of grace. Say, hey, I love you. Like, like, I know that my forgiveness of you doesn't change the fact that you owe me. But I'm choosing to forget. I'm choosing to forget the debt and move on. And I think that oftentimes when we talk about forgiveness, we kind of use this really stupid phrase of, hey, forgive and forget. And the reality is you can't forget. If someone legitimately hurt you, like you can't just forget that. You can't just wipe that from your memory. It's this conscious decision to say, hey, I'm probably going to remember this. This is probably going to sting on some level for a while, but out of the grace that I've been offered, I'm going to choose to take a hit. I'm going to forget the debt, and we're good. And we get to forgive and reconcile because that's how we have been forgiven through Christ. That like we've still sinned against Christ. He chose on the cross to take a hit for us so that we might have a right relationship with God. So the question for us is, man, are we able to understand the gospel and for the gospel to move us in such a way that even when we've been hurt, we have the ability to, to say, we're good. The debt has been canceled, right? To forgive and seek reconciliation. Maybe that's face-to-face, -face, or maybe that's uh, in a place where, like, man, you don't have access to that person anymore. But, and I pray long and hard about, I mean, God, what does reconciliation look like? What does it mean to kind of sit down and have that conversation? Because I think there's something incredibly healing about that. The last thing that I want to encourage you to do is this. If you kind of look in the mirror and think, man, I've, I've been doing some things that I think are honestly super hypocritical. And again, we're all hypocrites, right? No judgment here at all. What I want to encourage you to do is to grow in consistency, to grow in consistency. And here's what I mean. 
the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection, right? We oftentimes think, man, man, to, to not be a hypocrite, I have to be perfect. And that's false. The opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is consistency. It's this ability to be consistent. And what that means is oftentimes just being humble enough to own when you've fallen. Be humble enough to own and say, man, I looked nothing like Jesus in that instance. Man, I'm so sorry. Like, man, that, like, that, that, that's just not a good look. Like, that's not who Christ is. Man, I'm so sorry. And it's this ability to, to learn and be humble enough to own and say, hey, this is where I fell short. I'm so sorry. But then moving forward and saying, I'm going to try to be significantly more consistent in that area. Right? And so, again, it takes this kind of honest look at our hearts to say, all right, where does my life consistently not add up to the life of Christ? Like, like where am I just kind of off, right? And maybe you know immediately, and you're like, man, this is where I need to grow to be more consistent because I don't look like Jesus in this area. Or maybe it's a little harder. And maybe that, that means being humble enough to go to a friend and, and, and ask them and say, hey, what part of my life looks nothing like Christ? Because I guarantee you they will know. Your friends will be able to tell you point blank if they know that you're going to be able to receive that humbly. Be teachable enough to, to sit and to listen and say, hey, tell me where, where I don't look like Christ. And maybe that's something small or seemingly small, like, man, you're just not kind. You're, like, you're just rude all the time. You look nothing like Christ because you're mean, right? Or maybe it's something gaping. It's like, man, the way you talk on Sunday looks nothing like the way you talk on Saturday night. And there's a massive gap between, between those those, those two. And when you're at the party and you're talking in a certain way and then you mention that you're going to church in the morning, it kind of confuses people, right? Having the, the honesty and willingness to say, all right, where does my life look nothing like Christ? Where am I just inconsistent? And just imagine for a second what would happen if the people in this room said, my goal is not to be perfect. My goal is to be consistent collectively, my goal is to be consistent. I want to, man, just look at the life of Christ and just study him and try to look as much like him as I possibly can, knowing that, yes, I'm a sinner and I'm going to fall. And like the goal is not perfection, but I'm going to try to be as consistent as I can to look like Christ. And when I fall, I own it. I own it. And I say, hey, you know what? My bad. Because the beauty of the gospel is that despite our hypocrisy, Jesus still died for us. I think that's one of the craziest, craziest things when people say, man, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. I'm like, I know. Isn't that crazy that Jesus still died for him? Like Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus knew exactly what he was getting when he went to the cross. And one of those things that he knew that he was getting was hypocrisy. And so for us, it's just this posture of, man, I'm going to just own, yes, I fall and I sin, and I'm going to own, I'm going to try to be significantly more consistent in the way that I live. And I feel like if we were people that chose to be consistent, to consistently look like Christ, there'd be something so compelling about that, so compelling about a people that don't strive to be perfect or pretend to be perfect, but a people that strive to be consistent in looking like Christ. That's my hope and that's my prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are... Um, so unbelievably kind to us. The fact uh, that our lives so often um, look nothing like you, yet you are patient with us. Yet you don't give up on us. Yet your love for us is constant and steadfast. God, that is uh, amazing. So Father, I, I know that this week as, as I've been reading and studying, I've just 
I've been convicted of my own heart, my own soul, and all of the little ways that I, I fail to look like you. So that I confess to you my, my need for you, my need for you to do a work in my own heart and my own soul. Um, to grow and to look more like you. But Father, for my brothers and sisters in the room today, I ask that for those that have been hurt, those that have this, um, this history of just people in the church just being so hypocritical, and all the wounds that might come from, from that, God, I just ask that you do a healing work in their heart. That the forgiveness that you have offered us does something crazy in their heart that allows them to offer forgiveness, that allows them to take the hit, to forgive as they have been forgiven. And Father, for those that are just realizing, man, I've got a lot of work to do. God, my hope and my prayer is that it is not, uh, it's not a burden of guilt that when we realize that we have work to do in our own hearts with our own hypocrisy, we're not motivated by guilt, but we're motivated by the grace that, man, you love us anyway. And out of that love, I want to just move forward and just grow and look more like you. May there be no guilt or no shame in our attempt to look like you. May it just be pure joy knowing that we get to, to look like you and be a part of what you're doing in the world. So, Father, will you do a work in this room, do a work in our hearts? May we be consistent. May we look like you in all that we do. It's your sons and we pray. Amen.